Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean Basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Nicholas Morton for a conversation about the Battle of Agia Sanguinis. Agia and Sanguinis are Latin words. When translated into English, Agia means the field. So a similar word in English is agriculture, agra, agia. Sanguinis will be apparent to people that speak certain Romance languages like Spanish or French. Sanguinis means blood. So another moniker for this battle is the Battle of the Field of Blood. It occurred during the Crusading period on June 28, 1119 AD in the Levant region of the Mediterranean Basin, so in the eastern part of the Mediterranean, in the borderlands between one of the Crusader states, the Principality of Antioch and the city of Aleppo, and was an important victory for a Seljuk Turkish army against a Frankish Crusading army. So Dr. Morton joins the show today to speak more about the battle, the circumstances that surrounded the battle, the battle itself, and some of the long-term implications that the result of the battle had on the crusading efforts. Dr. Morton is a senior lecturer at Nottingham Trent University in the UK. He specializes in the Crusades and medieval Mediterranean in the 10th to 13th centuries. And he's the author of a monograph that's germane to this subject, the Field of Blood, The Battle for Aleppo and the Remaking of the Medieval Middle East, which was published by Basic Books. Welcome to the call, Nick. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. Yeah, it's great to have you on the call. So to create context for this conversation and background, can you share more about uh, this particular epoch of the Crusades? How? So where did this battle occur and how did we get to this battle actually occurring in the first place? Sure. Um, well, I suppose the origin of it would be the First Crusade. So in 1095, the Pope launched the First Crusade to retake Jerusalem. And over the next four years, several very large armies set out for the Near East, which ultimately ended in the conquest of Jerusalem, but also many other cities across the Near Eastern region. And in the wake of this, four states called the Crusader states were set up across the Near East by the Crusades, or at least those of the Crusaders who remained in the Near East. And they were called the County of Edessa in the north, the Principality of Antioch, the County of Tripoli, and then the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the south. Okay. Now, during the, the First Crusade, uh, the Crusaders defeated a number of field armies by their major opponents who were a group known as the Seljuk Turks. Now, the Seljuk Turks, in the immediate aftermath of the First Crusade, having suffered a series of defeats, it took a fair amount of time for them to rebound from that and to get back onto the offensive. But mm. increasingly, as sort of time went past, the Turks became more and more able to assert themselves against the Crusader states. And what we're looking at with the mm. Field of Blood is one of their very early victories because at this moment, the Principality of Antioch, that's one of the northernmost Crusader states, had been poised to conquer the city of Aleppo. And Aleppo was, and still in many ways is, a very strategic center for northern Syria. And so this powerful Crusader state had been trying to, to conquer Aleppo and was defeated really at the 11th hour by a Turkish army led by a commander called Il Ghazi. 
And so what my book's about mm. is about this crucial battle when the Crusaders seem to be winning from north to south, but Il Ghazi stops that advance at this very important battle called the Agia Sanguinis, or Battle of the Field of Blood. Hmm. When is it, so this is 1119 when this battle happens, when is it believed that the First Crusade ends? Um, or approximately. Yeah, or approximately. Sure. No, I mean, the Crusaders took Jerusalem in 1099, um, and so in some ways that completed the siege and many Crusaders then went home. But there were several mm. other waves of Crusaders who arrived after that in the years, you know, the years immediately following the First Crusade, and some historians include those within the definition of the mm. First Crusade. Some see that as a separate crusade. But really, the, the mere label First Crusade or Second Crusade or any of the Crusades, these are labels created by historians. No one at the time said, we're on the First Crusade or they're on the First Crusade. These are labels made by historians at the time. They called it the Peregrinatio, the, the pilgrimage. Mm. Um, it's only later that these labels came to be created. Mm-hmm. Um, the Crusader states and the um, the monikers for those, would those have been names that uh, they would have created at that time? Like Edessa, etc. Sure. The term Crusader states is a historian's term. Um, at the time, they referred to what we would call the Crusader states as Outremer, or the lands over the sea, Outremer, mm. overseas. Um so that came later, but the names of the specific territories mm -hmm. of the mm -hmm. Crusader states, the Kingdom of Jerusalem, the Principality of Antioch and the others, those were names um, that were held at the time. Yeah, so they created those names, but they weren't saying these are Crusader states, etc. No. Yeah, okay, understood. Um, so then within the Crusader states, if we can use that uh, phrase, um, where does this take place? Does it take the battle? Does it take place in the Principality of Antioch or somewhere else? Yeah, it, it takes place um, in the borderlands between the Principality of Antioch and their powerful neighbour, which is the ruler of Aleppo. So it takes place on the frontier mm. between the two, and it, it forms part of this struggle for the city of Aleppo, which the Crusaders ultimately lose. Okay, and for someone listening that may be completely um, new to where these states are, can you describe them on, on a map? Yeah, sure. So... In some, in some ways, the, the Eastern Mediterranean is a little bit like a slightly off-center uh, rectangle in that you have the southern coast of Turkey in the north, and then the side of the rectangle would be the coast of the Near East coming down as a sort of a slightly slight diagonal down towards Egypt, and then the Egyptian coast um, being the, the, the lower end of that rectangle, if you like. Okay. The Crusader states were strung out along the coastline in, the, in, in, the, in that middle section, the Levantine coast. And they hugged the coast largely because they were very dependent on Western Europe or Western Christendom, as it was known then, for supply, trade, and incoming settlers and further crusaders. And so um, along that coastline, you've got the Principality in the, of Antioch in the north, then the county of Tripoli, and then the Kingdom of Jerusalem. They hugged that Levantine coast between the Egyptian coast in the south and the Turkish coast in the north. And at this point in time, 1119, Aleppo was not 
part of uh, any of the Crusader states. That's correct, yes. Yeah. It was held by a dynasty that was a sort of an offshoot dynasty of the Seljuk Turkish Empire, which controlled much of the Near East at this time. Okay, and what was significant to the Crus Crusaders about this particular city? Okay, Aleppo is really important. Um, Aleppo is, economically speaking, it's the crossroads of a great deal of trade in the Near East itself. Um, but it's also a waypoint on the long-distance silk and spice trade routes from Central Asia and indeed from, um, India, from India and other places in the South, Southeast Asia. Okay. So it has goods that come up through the Persian Gulf and then overseas uh, up to Aleppo and, and all others that go um, from places like Northern China or Central Asia that then follow trade routes south of the Caspian Sea and then meet at Aleppo. So there's a great deal of wealth passing through Aleppo, and of course mm. that wealth can be taxed. So the ruler of Aleppo has uh, a considerable income. The city is also very heavily defended, and so it's important militarily. And it also sits fairly close to several of the major crossings of the Euphrates River, which is a major territorial marker in the Near East. And so control Aleppo then you control the crossings of the Euphrates, at least its, um, its, its northerly region, and that too has strategic implications. Hmm. So the battle uh, eventually happens. Who, who was it instigated by? Like which which side? Sure. Uh, it's a bit of a mixed mixed answer to that one. As I mentioned, the underlying threat comes from the Crusaders or the Franks, as they were known. Hmm and the pressure they've been placing on the city of Aleppo. And responding to this, really, uh, this Turkish warlord called Ilgazi rallied a large army of um, Turkish fighters, which then went to go and challenge the threat from the Franks to the city. And so they met at the Age Sanguinis, or the Battle of the Field of Blood, mm. and it was really there that the, that the battle was decided. Okay, so what, what happened? Okay, so I mean, Ilgazi is a very um, competent commander. So what he did was, first of all, he sent out forces intended to surround the crusading army. Now, okay. the Turks at this time, they fight for the most part as light cavalry archers. And their strategies are basically to wage hit and run style attacks on their opponents, wear them down with volleys of arrows over and over again, sometimes over many hours, sometimes over many days. And the idea being to wear them down, to cut off their supply lines until they are either weakened or do something stupid, at which point they will then close for hand-to-hand um, -hand combat and to destroy them. And those sorts of tactics, tactics are very effective. But of course, by 1119, the Franks have had many years to accustomize themselves to these tactics. Mm. And so their strategy is to use their formations of heavy cavalry knights and infantry. And what the Frankish tactic is, is to create a hard shell of infantries, of infantry and soldiers with very large shields. You form a kind of Roman tortoise, which can then hold off the Turks' arrows. And behind that wall of shields, they've got crossbowmen and bowmen who mm -hmm. can try and return fire against the Turkish mounted archers. And behind them, 
sheltering in the middle of the Frankish army is the cavalry. And the cavalry will, are designed to be protected by the infantry until they think their enemy has formed a cluster or a group that's big enough for the cavalry to move out through the ranks of the infantry and then stage their charge. Hmm. And the idea being that they charge, hit their target, reform and then withdraw back to the infantry's ranks before their horses become too tired. Hmm. So you've got two opposing strategies. And so Ilgazi knows this and he, he understands his opponent very well and the Franks themselves understand their Turkish opponents very well. So we're talking about two elite armies who are fairly well accustomed to each other. And so it starts off with Ilgazi trying to disorientate his opponents. So the Franks wake to find horns being blown and drums being beaten all around them, mm -hmm. a degree of psychological warfare, if you will. Then he forms his army and the Franks for their part form their forces. And the Franks start by feeling that they, the Turks have formed a big enough cluster for them to be able to hit it with their knights before the Turks will have a chance to disperse. Okay. And so the way that the Franks stage their cavalry charges is to have multiple squadrons of knights, the idea being the first one goes straight at the enemy, the next two then hook round on either side, the idea being to sort of corral their enemy so they can't flee, hmm. and then to squeeze them with the remaining contingents then moving into any gaps that are then formed. And it's often very effective. Okay. But what they didn't know was that Il Ghazi was well aware of those tactics. And so when the knights charged out to meet this target as the Franks saw it, the Turks had already been primed to stage a withdrawal hmm. immediately. Hmm. And they then withdrew, the knights pursued them, it's called feigned flight tactics, and led the Franks into essentially an ambush where they found themselves surrounded on many sides by other Turkish forces that had been hidden in the rear. The knights were then surrounded, their horses were shot down, the knights then formed a defensive huddle, and the Turks then closed to finish them off. Mm. That's the end of the battle. But it's interesting because we're looking at two intelligent commanders who understand each other, and it's how they play to, their, to each other's strengths and weaknesses that that's what helps to explain the battle's ultimate outcome. And how many soldiers would have been on both sides? Difficult to say. Mm -hmm. Estimates of the Frankish or Crusader army put it normally at around 10,000 troops. So we're talking about maybe four to 5,000 Frankish troops with a hard core of about 700 cavalry okay. and then a wider pool of about the same number, about 5,000 auxiliaries. For the Turks, it's difficult to say. It's mm -hmm. almost certainly a much larger number, maybe twenty to 30,000 all in. But again, we're basing this off estimates of people who weren't necessarily there or basing it on second or third hand information. So it's difficult to be sure. But most most reports suggest that the Turks had the numerical advantage. But as previous battles had shown, numbers alone in this kind of encounter don't tend to be decisive. It's much more to do with whether the Franks can maintain their discipline and whether the Turks can maintain pressure without giving the Knights a solid target to hit. Hmm. How close would this battle have been to the actual city, Aleppo? Um, truth to tell, I can't remember off the cuff. I would say, uh, as a rough estimate, maybe 15 to 20 miles. Okay. 
and the Franks weren't advancing against Aleppo, but having at that particular moment in time, but having said that if they had won, then it would have been a very obvious thing for them to do, strategically speaking, to stage an advance soon afterwards against the city. What do we know about the the terrain? So where where they actually fought? Was it was it hilly? Were there forests around? And and what do we know, if anything, about the climate that day? Okay, um, the one thing we do know is that it was ex- extremely hot, and so hot that of, and of course you've got to imagine the scene. I mean, these are warriors fighting, wearing multiple layers of clothing and armor. Hmm. So after several hours of fighting in chain mail on a horse, which itself will be perspiring, it's, it's going to be extremely draining physically without the exertion of battle as well. So this is one of the challenges of fighting in the Near East for all the combatant parties, is how you cope with fighting day-long battles in the midday heat. Mm-hmm. So there is that as a challenge. The country itself, fairly hilly. Um, okay. It's probably easiest to describe it as a kind of Mediterranean climate in some ways. It's certainly not desert. Uh, there's plenty of vegetation around, but neither is it forest either. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Okay. So the Turks win the battle. What do you believe was the um, sub- subsequent results of this battle? Sure. I mean, the prob- one of the strategic problems of the Principality of Antioch, which is the Crusaded State we're talking about, mm-hmm. is that it, it's got enough manpower to put together a big army, but it doesn't have enough manpower to put together a second army if the first one gets lost. So in, in many ways, the, the army they put together whilst large, that's pretty much all they've got. And at the Battle of the Field mm. of Blood, that army is more or less annihilated. Okay. So that then creates a strategic opportunity for Il Ghazi and his forces, because they're very aware that there is no second line of defence here for the Franks. And so they're able to send raiding parties to, to all the way across the Principality of Antioch, causing widespread devastation because they know there's going to be no answer to that and in fact it's only when a relief force arrives from another crusader state to the south that's the kingdom of jerusalem that il ghazi is then brought to battle and is in fact defeated but only after his forces have ranged far and wide across the prince principal Atlantic. so it's a big defeat for um that for this northernmost crusader state okay and to try to link the crusades and i know there's a lot of battles and so on and skirmishes in between as 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 well um so what what occurs as a result of this battle on a more macro scale in that area does the, do the turks then control that principality um or 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 do they or, or are they able able to withhold um the crusade the crusading side are they able to withhold the turks advance Okay, that's a good question. So the relief forces I mentioned from the Kingdom of Jerusalem in the south, they arrive and they are able to sort of, to some extent, Mm -hmm. redefine the frontier of the Principality of Antioch. So in the long term, it doesn't lose huge amounts of land. And in fact, it regains some of that land a little while later. So the consequences of the Principality of Antioch are not great in terms of their territory. What it does do is it means that they require propping up from this from their neighbour for many years. Mm. It takes a long time for them to get back on the offensive by themselves. Now, 
the support they received from the Kingdom of Jerusalem, that's the, their neighbour to the south, that does enable them to go on the offensive briefly against Aleppo a few years later. But I suppose what I'm really talking about here mm. and the significance of the Battle of the Field of Blood is that this is one of the key battles that stops the Crusaders advancing. Mm. So it's not the beginning of the end for them. Um, it's not, it's not a, a decisive blow against them. But for their Turkish opponents, it's crucial because for decades before the Field of Blood, for two decades before the Field of Blood, there's really been very little stopping the Franks. They've taken town after town, city after city, and this is one of the crucial moments where that stops. And although the Franks do try and resume the offensive mm -hmm. afterwards, it's really a key moment when the tables are turned and the balance of power begins to turn in the other direction. Mm. Really. So it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a ba balancing point moment, if you see what I mean. Yeah, point made. Um, throughout the uh, Crusades, does Aleppo ever get lost by the Seljuk Turks? Um, it is lost, but it's it's not lost to the Franks or the Crusader states. Mm -hmm. It's lost to other Turkic dynasties, or ultimately, much later in 1183, it's lost to um, the Ayyubid dynasty, which is a Kurdish dynasty of whom the most famous um, leader is Saladin, who many, many many people would have heard of, and mm. he's he takes it in 1183 after a, a series of diplomatic and military encounters. Uh, so yeah. Okay, and then a closing question: um, What is uh, something that, um, in your research of this uh, period of time or this particular battle, that you find a lot of people that have studied it may not be aware of? Something something interesting that you may have found out in your research. Okay. And if, and if nothing's coming to mind, that's that's fine too. <laughs> no, that's fine. Uh, I'm, I'm going to answer the question at a slight tangent, go for if it. I may. Yeah, yeah, go for it. Um, but I th I mean, in some ways, the Battle of the Field of Blood gives people what they expect, which is a battle fought by and large between Christian Franks or Crusaders on one side and Muslim Turks on the other. And so. In, that's what people expect to hear when they talk about the Crusades, it hmm. being a war between Christianity and Islam. But in fact, what my book does is, whilst the battle does form the centrepiece of the book, it actually offers a much more complex picture where these things are not nearly as simple as you might think. So, for example, the, the, the victor in this battle, Il Ghazi, he is himself, in his religious identity, partly Islamic, but it seems also very likely that he still maintained various beliefs of his steppe forefathers. So the Turks themselves come from the Central Asian steppe originally. And previously, many generations before, they practiced the shamanistic religions of that region. And those haven't, haven't entirely gone by the time of the Battle of the Field of Blood. And Il Ghazi is known to have still practiced some of these beliefs. So we're looking at a battle fought between Crusaders on one hand, but on the other, a warlord who is still, or, or leader who is still part way through that conversion process, where he has taken on some Muslim beliefs, but he also practices some of the shamanistic beliefs of his forefathers as well. So it's, it's interesting, but also in some of the wider battles of this period, it's not as simple as just crusaders on one side and Turks or Muslims on the other. Mm -hmm. There are plenty of battles where there are crusaders and Turks on both sides. So it's a much more blended 
environment where there are mm. multiple factions, some of which are Frankish or Crusader, some of which are Turkish, some of which are Arab, some of which are Byzantine, some of which are Kurdish, and they're all jockeying for position, and that creates all sorts of interesting configurations of power, and it's, it's, it's by all means uh, not always a case of Christians versus Muslims, it can be a great deal more complex than that. But something else that mm -hmm. I, I find very interesting is that there are many examples of friendships or respect being shown across religious or cultural boundaries. And so a few years before the Battle of the Field of Blood, there's an occasion where the Prince of Antioch with his army advances against a town called Shizar, and the attack goes very badly, so he's forced into a retreat and the retreat, it looks like it could break up into a rout until one night, so the story goes, um, took a step out from the, the ranks of his retreating fellows and fought off the enemy and enabled the Franks to escape from their pursuers. Hmm. And what makes this story interesting is not that bit of it, it's that what this knight who had, allowed, who had enabled his army to escape did afterwards was he then went to the town of Shizar, knocked on the door and said to the, the rulers of the town of Shizar, a family called the Banu Munkit, and said that he had so much respect for the way they had conducted themselves in battle, could he come and stay with them for a while and share tips on, on, on yeah. you know, so they could practice and train together. And they invited yeah. him in, yeah. they showed him hospitality and then he went home again. So. There are lots of these interesting examples, which again, they, they don't fit the, the sort of stereotyped interfaith war or whatever it might be that you tend to hear from, mm -hmm. tend to hear so much about the Crusades. There are lots of these examples about friendships and respect being shown across cultural boundaries, and that I find that fascinating. Is there any evidence that you came across of trade between the two factions prior to this battle? Yeah. There is, mm -hmm. and this is another interesting thing, mm -hmm. because um, the two main protagonists in this story are mm -hmm. the rulers of Aleppo and the rulers of Antioch, and politically they're two separate state, states, mm -hmm. but commercially they are, they are absolutely tied to each other. Mm. Aleppo is a massive market and a major waypoint for the silk and spice routes. But the Principality of Antioch controls a port called Latakia, which is where a lot of that trade goes to meet the Mediterranean. Mm. So they need each other. And in fact, according to one estimate, um, there were no fewer than a thousand merchants or people from Aleppo engaged in, the in commerce in their neighbour, the, the Principality of Antioch. Wow. conducting that trade and of course they're welcome there just as there are people from the Principality of Antioch in Aleppo because both sides have a vested interest in seeing that trade prosper because it's the backbone of both states income so trade and warfare they both occur simultaneously which sounds astonishing but you actually have there's a, a Spanish Muslim pilgrim who goes to this region somewhat later and he says with astonishment hmm. that he could you can witness armies fighting on one side of a road and caravans traveling to and fro on the other side of the road and actually both those things can happen because the rulers want to fight over territory but they both want the trade to happen and so it's a remarkable environment really hmm. the purpose of this episode was to focus on a very specific historical battle 
but your closing stories about uh, friendships and respect that was formed and shown at times and uh, trade that occurred during this period, I think is a very nice uh, spot to close out this episode. Thanks for coming on the show, Nick. Pleasure. Thank you for having me. So again, everybody, a book that Dr. Morton wrote that's germane to this uh, conversation today is The Field of Blood, The Battle for Aleppo and the Remaking of the Medieval Middle East. I'll drop a link to the book in the show notes on the Ithacabound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Nick and everybody listening, as always, wishing you a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.